We laugh. We cry. We learn. But really, what doesn't kill you makes you better at managing clients and everyone. I'm Morgan Friedman, and this is Client Horror Stories. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Client Horror Stories. I'm honored to have tonight with uh, the one and only Robert Persikitty. I hope I pronounced that last name correctly. You got it. (laughs) And I'm already excited for this episode because I always invite all my guests to have a beer because it makes the best episode, but Robert actually has a beer. So this is fantastic. (laughs) That's the Denver lifestyle. I'm jealous already. So let's jump right into your story. I'm excited to hear all about today's client horror story. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first, I apologize for being an accountant because usually there's no exciting accounting stories. This is an exception, I assure you. Um, (laughs) I'm an accountant. I help people basically understand what their financial future is going to look like and make plans around that financial future. And one of the horror stories that I went through is with this attorney who was um, pretty high level, pretty high earner, very high stress job. And he really, really wanted to retire. He wanted to retire as soon as possible. He absolutely hated his job and wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. Now, when you're going through this process, you have to talk to the clients and take input from the clients about what their life is like, what their goals are, what they kind of expect things to look like. Because really money is useless without context, right? If you're earning a bunch of money, but you're not spending it, does it really matter? Um, So we try to contextualize that. We try to put everything in the context of goals, but this is where the problem came in with this client. He gave us an estimate and he gave us an estimate of about $6,000 a month in lifestyle expenses. And what that entails is really everything other than your debt payments, your house payments, and your car payments. This is just your having fun money, paying for things like groceries, going out. Um, If you're like buying a new TV or something fun, uh, that goes into this budget. And $6,000 a month, that's pretty high in my opinion. but you know, we go with what we hear. Once he's been a client for a while, so, though. So oh, yeah. just, just to be clear, the um, to set up for the excitement that's surely going to happen, um, the $6,000 a month, was that his goal of what he wanted to have or the $6,000 in expenses was his current, his, his current budget? That that was his estimate of his budget. That's what he says. I think I'm spending $6,000. Current spending. Got it. Yep, exactly. So when we asked him, how much do you spend a month? How much do you need for this stuff? He said, I really don't know. I, I think it's $6,000 a month. Now, it's very common for clients to not know if they're a high huh. earner. So if somebody's making hundreds of thousands of dollars, they probably can't nail that number down because they never really had to. There was never pressure on them in the past. 
Um, so we're kind of used to clients lying a little bit. Once they're a client for a while, you get to see what's going on. And you're setting goals for them and saying, hey, put this much aside from your account. I expect based on what you're told, you know, the things that you're telling me, based on what you're telling me, we're going to have a certain balance in the savings accounts by the end of the year. Now, usually what happens with a new client, you go look at that and you say, okay, well, we're way off. Almost nobody guesses it right. Um, and you give them a call and say, all right, let's kind of get this in line with what we expect it to be. Now, this guy was way off, way off. And what he was actually spending or his household was actually spending was about $10,000 a month. Now, what makes it even one step harder, this guy was at work all the time. He was not the person spending it. He was not the one in the household spending that money. He only spent about $2,000 a month. And the other $8,000 a month came from his wife, who was uh -huh. the spender. So then we have we're, a we're really big difference. We're definitely not going to mention any stereotypes here because any relation to, yeah. stereotype, to stereotypes of men and women in marriage is purely coincidental because stereotypes are bad. I agree. This is a specific thing that actually happened to me. So, exactly. You know, it could, it could be flipped. I've seen it. It could flipped. have been flipped. It's, it's possible that it's flipped. In this scenario, um, he was not spending as much as his wife. Um, so she spent, she spent about $8,000 a month. And our job is to call him and say, hey, your financial plan, that plan we put together, you know, six, eight months ago, it's not going to work. It's not going to work because you're not, your reality that you're communicating with us doesn't match the actual reality of the situation. It's, it's kind of a complete fiction there because it's way off. You're way off. Now, this is where it gets really tricky be, and awkward for be, us. Before we go to where it gets tricky and awkward, I just want to be a client commentary on that, which is it's based on just what you said so far. It seems like the challenge is he kind of lived in his own world. He didn't have a sense of reality. So it sounds like he wasn't purposely lying to you, but, but he didn't know his wife was spending this. And this is an interesting pattern in client relationships because what happens all the time is clients lie, but it's not because they're like, malicious or trying to uh, trying to lie to you is they're just so disconnected from 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 reality they're uh, they're they're not seeing what's what's in front of what's in front of their noses oh martin you hit you hit the nail on the head and realistically this guy had no idea he had no clue. something's not a problem somebody's taking care of something in the background who cares yeah you know i don't have to think oh, about no. this it's, it's not showing up on my desk. I got a million things to think about, especially this client in particular. The guy was a workaholic. I mean, the guy was working between 60 and 80 hours a week. He was working all the time. He didn't have time to sit down and go through his budget, which is why he had a lot of money to begin with. Um, but it's also why he, he didn't know. He, he just didn't know. I, I agree with you completely that it wasn't malicious. It was... Um, ignorance, ignorance, which is, may, you know, maybe part of the reason why he hired somebody like my firm. 
So right. in solving that, we, we, we have to solve it because again, he's paying us. I want to retire as early as possible. And, you know, we told him 58, 59, you, you can retire early. Um, but we were expecting $6,000 a month at $10,000 a month. No, you can't retire early. You're going to have to work into your mid to late sixties here. So we have to have a call and we really need to get everybody in the household, the spender, the wife, the spender, the husband, the earner, and us. We all need to get on the same page about what's important. What are the goals? What's actually going to happen? Are you going to be able to follow this plan? Once we give it to you, are you going to be able to listen to us? And there's a joke in the industry that a good financial planner is part accountant, part marriage counselor, because a lot of times they might not have the best communication as your clients and you kind of have to be the go-between to make that work. But by the way, I, it's a great saying. I, I never heard it, heard it before, but what's, you're the only financial planner I know actually. So, uh, so it makes sense. I haven't heard it before, but what's, Interesting is this, I think that saying, I think could apply to almost any professional relationship. Like half of a lawyer's job is just getting clients. Well, what do you really want to do? Do you, do you want to do this or do you want to do that? And, um, and, and, and a lot of marketing, like my, like my profession is also very similar. Well, what kind of business do you want do you want to build? And what are the, the what, and, what are the consequences of those um, of, of those decisions? Just helping people think through these big life questions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, this is my commentary as a married person, not as a financial planner. But <laughs> in that relationship, sometimes you have different views on the world and and different views on what you envision your life to be like in the future. It's not just true in marriage; it's true in business; it's true in anything where we internalize these assumptions and we internalize what our vision for the future is. When you're talking with a professional, any type of professional, but in my case, you know, the financial professional, especially my job is to quantify these views. And I have to put your vision for the future down into a math problem. And I have to get one specific vision for the future. I can't just average out what each of you wants your retirement to look like. It needs to be one vision for the future with one outcome. I, there, I love that phrase. I think I'm going to start using it because it's actually very much the same in marketing. Like in marketing, we need to figure out how to get people buying your product and you just need a formula. Okay, we get this percentage of sales from this funnel that will have these numbers associated with it. This cost per client leads to this, this percentage buying leads to this recurring income. It's just taking their vision for the kind of growth that they want and mapping it to formulas and then making it really happen. So I, 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 like, I like your way of putting it. It's, this is very generalizable. You leave it to an accountant to uh, take a problem and turn it into a math problem. That's how we, that's how we see the whole world. But by the way, my, my father is an accountant. So, uh, so I, I <laughs> noble profession, <laughs> I, a lot of times when I'm introducing myself to students or, or to new people, I like to tell them that I'm an accountant in my soul 
And it's very interesting, the different reactions that I get of uh, sometimes it's, oh, how sad. <laughs> That's kind of my favorite reaction. But I, I think, you know, all I'm doing is quantifying whatever. If I'm quantifying your desire to retire or I'm quantifying your, you know, wanting to get out of your terrible job. I'm quantifying those things. How much do you want to get out of there? What number do you want to get out of there? And making it fit with the rest of the accounting equation or the, you know, financial, whatever, right. <laughs> whatever problem you're facing. Exactly. So anyway, we're at this head with, you know, it's, it's, me, it's another planner, and it is the husband and wife. And we call them up on the phone and say, hey, um, we try to phrase it as positively as possible because we don't, we don't right. want to lose him into the client. We don't want him to be right. shocked or upset here. So we say, all right, we have good news for you. Our good news is you can still achieve your goal as long as you can get your lifestyle expenses down to $8,000 a month. And of course, the husband says, well, sure, that seems completely reasonable. I thought we were only spending $6,000 a month. And the wife is extremely quiet. We couldn't get him in a room together. He, he had a very busy schedule. So we couldn't get everybody in the room together. It was over the phone. It was over actually a conference call. They weren't even in the room together. Uh, and in the, the pre-Zoom era, so you couldn't see her face. <laughs> yes, pre-Zoom, we couldn't see anybody. So all we had was an awkward silence to go off of. And, uh, you know, he he's just like, yep, I think that's reasonable. And we're just kind of hoping like, hey, wife, can you please tell him? Can you? Surely, you know, surely, you know, that you're spending way more than you originally estimated. And eventually he broke the silence and said, you know, that's got me curious. How much are we spending a month? And that's where we came in and said, well, you're spending about $10,000 a month. And his response, he kind of intuitively knew, hmm, I'm not spending that much per month. And so I, I think, I, I mean, I think the guy got it right away of where's the rest of this coming from and kind of went to his wife and said, Hey, do you think that that goal is reasonable? And her response is yes, it's reasonable. And again, remember this is discretionary spending here. This is not your house, everything else. Um, and so at that point, we kind of got a, for lack of a better term, pass the buck and just say, hey, you're on your own now. Thank you. I'm glad we brought this to your attention. Goodbye. And check back in regularly to see, okay, did this actually fix the problem? Did she rein that spending in or did they, as a, I guess he could just stop spending money is another solution. But uh, did they rein that spending in to make their goals achievable? Okay, so so let's pause here. One question is is I liked your your uh, 
voice of the wife saying, yeah, I think that's achievable. When people talk to me like that, I think it feels like a euphemism and they don't actually like they don't actually want to do it. So like my so it's interesting you you were you're like okay my response is you said oh my, you're on your own we'll check back in but my response would have been to be like super clear and strong dude to achieve the goal this needs to happen there's like there there's there, there's a, there's a huge issue go figure it out. Mm-hmm. What here's where I kind of have the philosophical difference and. Um, th- this is partially where we are in terms of just financial planning of, we have two competing goals. And one of the goals is I don't like my high stress job and I want to retire as soon as possible. And the other goal is I want to spend lots of money every month. And <laughs> either one of those goals is achievable. Both of them are not. Both of them are not one or the other is right, right, right. And so, for me, um, th- again, you know, this is where it became so difficult from a professional standpoint. Of hey, whatever you choose, whatever one of those goals is actually important to you, we can do it. We can, you know, we can get there. It's just it's going to take us longer to get there one way, um, and different, even different professionals in the industry have different views on this of, are you more of a coach where you're trying to steer them in the right direction? Or are you more of the enforcer saying, you know, getting on that phone saying, Hey, put down the credit card. You got to stop spending. You hit your limit for the month. And it's a fine line to walk because if you're the enforcer, if you're laying down the law, you're going to have an adversarial relationship with your client. They're going to see your name on the caller ID, say, Oh my gosh, this guy is going to yell at me. He, you know, he's just going to tell me what to do. And I don't want to do it because I want to spend this money. And realistically, what it comes down to is, you know, your, your words are stating one goal and your actions are doing something completely different. And my suspicion is that she knew how much she was spending from the get-go just because of her response to the call, her response to why we were there. I feel like she kind of knew the jig is up. So, so we'll, we'll get back to her in a minute, but I feel like yeah. your, uh, your comment on being the coach versus the enforcer, I think we're hitting on a super important point that's at the heart of being a professional, which is, which is the more boring framing of this whole podcast. Kind heart story <laughs> sounds exciting, but oh, I want to hear a heart story, but it's really about how to act like a professional. And I think, I actually think you're hitting on a really important point. And in every episode, I try to get at least one new point that no one has ever said before. In the whole history of the podcast, and I think this might be the point in in in, in the um, uh, in the episode that as a professional, you have to walk this line between being the enforcer, so the message is clear, they do what's needed. But your point is great; you don't want to be the asshole. Then they won't want to work with you. And like, like, who wants to work with an asshole? I like, I don't. But you need to be strong. And um, and and then the, uh, versus the other extreme of just like being the coach. 
being supportive and do this and do this and do this. But if you're like too nice and euphemistic, then it's really, it's, there's too much high of a risk that they don't get the message and they, and they, and they don't actually, do, they, 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 they don't, they don't actually do, do, the, do the right thing. Oh, totally. And I think that's actually one of the reasons that so many people are drawn to um, really, they call themselves financial professionals, but they're people that have no business in the industry of it's a lot of scams out there where you go to somebody and, and I think we all kind of hear it with uh, a lot of the multi-level marketing spiel of give me $10,000 and then you can quit your job forever. And I think we all kind of know intuitively, like that's too good to be true. I, I don't think that if I just give a little bit of money, I can retire and never work again. Right. I think we intuitively know, yeah, retirement's kind of hard and it's a slow road. But when you have me, the accountant, saying, yeah, slow road, eat your vegetables, we'll get there eventually, versus somebody off the street saying, you know, party time, do whatever you want, and we're going to get there and it's going to be super easy. Uh, you know, the client is ultimately making that choice. And so sometimes we do sugarcoat things of saying, spend what you want, you know, and that, that's always what I come back to, spend what you want, do whatever you want. There's going to be consequences down the road. And me, very math oriented person, here, yeah, do it. Spend, you know, spend $10,000 a month. I don't care. You're going to just retire six years later. And whatever you want, man, you know, it's your life. And yeah. I don't think that's what you really want. And Really, to your point, you got to give that client enough of a push that they're going to do the right thing. And, and that may, makes sense. I want to make another observation, just riffing on what, what you're saying. Yeah. Coincidentally, earlier today, nothing to do with this. I happened to tweet an observation. I thought of that, um, that values are, um, uh, the values are meaningless unless you make explicit a trade-off against another value. And what I realized listening to you right now is this is kind of the definition of a professional. Like the non-professional, oh yeah, let's fix this, let's build this, let's do this, let's make this happen. But what? But the core in, in any profession, financial professional, lawyer, marketer, doctor, the core of the professional worldview is basically saying, saying hey, you need to understand their trade-offs of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of what you're doing. In fact, the better the professional, the better and more sophisticated and subtle understanding they have, they have, they have of the trade-offs. Because sometimes the trade-offs are easy numbers. Oh, this number goes up, that number goes down. But sometimes the trade-offs are emotional. Hey, you can work really, really hard, but you might burn yourself out. And um, so, so I also re and really like this definition and framing of the professional is is the person that lets the client take charge of their own life. The professional is just the, is just the advisor, but really helping them make clear and understand the, the different trade-offs that will, that will come as a result of the different options in front of them. Absolutely. And the way that I phrase that, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I phrase it as there's a difference between a goal and a wish. I wish I looked like Terry Crews, right? 
I, I wish just I woke up tomorrow, I had great big <laughs> muscles and you know, I could just walk down the street like that. That's not a goal because I'm not spending 10 hours a day in the gym. If it was a goal, I would take steps towards that goal and steps to do that. And in fact, I kind of intuitively know what, you know, what does it take to look like Terry Crews? A lot. It takes a lot to look like that. You're going to be in the gym all the time. And it's the same with retirement and financial planning of, I have a wish to retire. I'm not saving anything. I, I have a wish to have this outcome but I'm still going to spend just like I did before. I'm not going to take any steps to actually get there. And just like you said, you know, just like you said, Morgan, the professionals have to really guide people into making something achievable and having a path to get there. And maybe sometimes having hard conversations of saying yeah, you have to give up. You can't, do everything that you want to do to get to this goal, getting to this goal is going to require these different sacrifices to get there. Yeah. And, and uh, definitely, I think this is an interesting point. And then I would take it a step further where these are even, let's say more obvious trade-offs, but then as you get more and more high level, you get the trade-offs become more subtle and more complex. Okay. Okay. I'm, putting away $6,000 a month in savings so I, can, so I can reach my goal, but I can put them in stocks which are higher risk or bonds that are lower risk. So let's talk about like the, the, uh, the trade-offs of, of, where to put, of where to put the money. So it's this similar, so even, even, even breaking free of the having hard conversations dynamic, this is I think a, bro a broader, more, more applicable point to say, that, that, that at every level of making a decision, let's really think through the trade-offs and consequences. Yeah. Well, and once you have the commitment, you can get more in the weeds, you can get more in depth. Yes. But I can have a perfect financial plan and you know perfect investments. And then if you spend all the money, it doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> it's matter. all completely <laughs> irrelevant. I, I, I didn't right. have to do all that work. I could have gone home early. <laughs> It, it, it doesn't matter unless you're actually following through with it. Agreed. So speaking of follow through, let's, I, I'm happy you're chugging the beer. So, uh, so you had the hard conversation and the, and, and then how did it turn out and what happened? So the immediate consequence, like I said, is thank God that that's over. And I hung up the phone and I put the notes into my system and said, Oh, I'm not going to think about this anymore today. Um, obviously I couldn't do that because he was still my client. Um, All right. I, I had to, I had to see how that plan was going. Eventually the, the spending, I, I shouldn't even say eventually, it was really in the course of like two or three months, the spending got under control and we got to see those firm commitments into those savings goals. And um, he was on track to meet his goal. Um, just kind of moving through, uh, he was able to, and I, I always kind of refer back to the lawyer. The lawyer was my client. And so I, I certainly care about the, the wife's well-being, um, his, you know, his spouse's well-being. Um, she wasn't my client. Um, 
So got it under control, was able to get to that goal and is on track, is, is on track for that early retirement, which is okay, so what he, he wanted. <laughs> okay. So, um, okay. So crisis averted and, uh, and, uh, and, and happy ending. So the, they're still married. So that works. The, <laughs> you, you, you did not cause a divorce. <laughs> I did not cause a divorce. I did not lose a client. <laughs> I'm I'm happy about both of those. <laughs> so, so the from the eyes as, as a professional, the horror of that story is having is that moment when you're forced to interject yourself into their relationship to basically expose this secret bad behavior of the um of the wife to the husband, and that is like a terrorful if that's a word terrorful full of terror i think it's a horrible full of horror um it's a horrible moment um that in to 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 uh, to be in there because who wants to become uh, like as like as a human who wants to go between a husband and wife but as a professional you have between a husband and wife the, the husband's going to choose the wife over you <laughs> well totally and on top of that you know I myself am a very analytical numbers person. Uh, I don't want to be there. I don't want to, I don't want to talk about feelings. I want to talk about a math problem. I'm good at math problems. I'm not good at feelings. And uh, that was early on in my career. I think as I progressed, I learned a lot more about, yes, it's numbers. I'm doing math. I'm doing equations and numbers here, but the reason that these people are, talking to me, the, the whole reason that they picked up the phone is because they have a feeling about something. And that might only be kind of related to the numbers. Their feelings are what's driving their relationship to me in the first place. So I need to be receptive of that and, and deal with it. Now, I, I still would say I do not like being in between a husband and a wife, especially when they can't agree on something because you know, if they can't agree in my office, they probably can't agree in other places either. And I can't just magically fix that. But you have to be able to smooth it over enough to get down to your answer, what you need for your job. And for me, that's what what's important. What what is the number one priority here? What's what's also interesting to me is I'm trying to abstract out this lesson into a broader lesson is how frequently people's personal lives become a core part of their work and thus as a as a professional advisor that uh, that that that, that the, the marriage counselor joke ends ends up being like like maybe professionals should be required to get therapist <laughs> degrees as well yeah, I think there's like this mistake, the, this false thing that gets perpetuated. And maybe it's, it's kind of the same thing, you know, talking to my kids of you have this view that grownups have their stuff together and that 
when you stop being a kid and you start being a grown up, then you're able to make analytical decisions and make good decisions and everything's easy to do. And I think we extend that one step further in saying, I think these CEOs and CFOs must clearly have all their lives together to get there because that that's, if they don't have it together, who has it together? And I think that it couldn't be further from the truth. The reality of it is we're all people and we're all subject to dealing with fear and dealing with desires and even things that might not be surface visible of what do I care about and what's important to me? And we have to have conversations in order to really draw that up. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think when you're growing up, I think the model that a lot of people have of the world is that is that by and large people 15 years older than them, like know how things go. So like like like, like when, when I was in high school, I was like, wow, college students are so smart and philosophical. And you get to college and you're like, no, they're just drunken idiots. But wow, everyone in the real world has a job and responsibility. You know what they're doing? Then, then you go into the real world and get a job. You're like, no, no one knows what they're doing. You know? And then you're like, they're drunken idiots too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and and then um, and, and then you just get in, but you're like, oh no, but my boss. Oh no, but my parents. And then one day, you're a parent, you're a boss, and and you still think, oh no, 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 but like, uh, but those uber successful sixty year old gazillionaires, they're the ones that know what they're uh, what they're doing. And then you read about the uber successful gazillionaire, you're like, after his eighth divorce, and you're like, no, he's just as much of a disaster as everyone else. And I think part of being, if this isn't just a professional, I've brought it out of being an adult, I think, is this realization that kind of everyone is a mess. And as a, and as a result, your responsibility as an adult and what separates the adults from the children is, or let's say the adult mindset from the children's mindset is to say, every, like, everyone's a mess and it's my responsibility and only my responsibility to turn my life from not being a mess into some semblance of an or of of order. Oh, totally, totally. And I I think eventually in life you figure out there's no epiphany moment. There's no magical moment where you can completely divorce your emotions from your professional life and and I talk to a lot of uh, engineers and especially engineers seem to have this view that there is a, a right answer. There's a perfect answer that goes along with everything. And there's a field that's emerging of uh, it's called behavioral finance of there, there is in accounting, there is a right answer. There is one optimal answer, but we almost never should recommend it because people don't follow that. So we should do this maybe pretty good answer that they're actually going to do and follow and use. And we should not treat our clients like robots who are going to perfectly execute everything. We should treat them instead of flawed humans who we want to make kind of a 
uh, tilt in the right direction, a push in the right direction, rather than instantaneously changing their life trajectory. Oh, by the way, I love that point. It's exactly my approach as a professional in marketing um, as well. But the way I usually make that same point to people is by quoting a classic observer. It's a cousin of my mind. It's fairly obscure, though, but I love it. Um, but it's not original. I, I didn't invent it. I, I, heard, I heard it once long ago that the best diet is the one that you stick to. And because and everyone, everyone always argues, what's the healthiest diet? Oh, should I be paleo or vegan or vegetarian? But the reality is 90% of the time, you're that way for three months. And then, and then you have some crisis in life and you start eating candy and you're, and, and you're, and, and you're eating unhealthy again. But whichever of the theoretically ideal diets is a lot less important than just having some process, some system that's just healthy enough. Like vegan, vegetarian, paleo, whatever, any of those is better than just eating three musketeers and Twizzlers and candy all day long. So, <laughs> so, so it's just having one that you stick to, and it's and it's a and it's a con. What I and that's my way of making that point. But it's just like your point about behavioral finance that I had never wired it into accounting before, but but it makes perfect sense that rather than saying, oh yeah, do this thing that is that you're unlikely to actually do that will save you the most money as opposed to this balance you'll be able to do it easily and it'll save you just enough go exactly yeah i you know what you said reminded me my wife and i were talking recently i bought the vitamins for our kids and she comes to me and she says hey don't buy these vitamins for our kids because I, I see this study that says it's better for them to get it from uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. And I said, they're eating macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets. What fresh fruit and vegetables are part of this diet here? Let's do this. We don't, we don't want to make perfect the enemy of good. Yeah. That's I, I, Voltaire's line. I, that, that, that's the final line of one of his poems is, uh, is a is is a great a great way of stating a point and and we can never be reminded of too too often. In fact, it's one of my personal struggles as a recovering perfectionist. I maybe I should start a blog for myself, recoveringperfectionist.com, That uh, uh, that 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 it's taken taking a lot of discipline on myself in, in in order to realize you know it's the perfect enemy of the good. I want things that are just good enough and you can tweak them into perfection. Yeah. I I tend to look at things with a growth mindset and it means that you're going to do a lot of things wrong, but the very comforting thought that always stays with me is that somewhere in the future there is a better version of you. Oh, I like that. I like yeah. that. I hadn't thought about that before. But if, if you go in and you're trying to make things better, uh, you, you probably won't achieve perfection, but there is better in your future. You, you can achieve better. That, better is very easy to achieve. Better just means a slight change. And I think in terms of just the communications of, of making things happen that are achievable, 
is so much more important than things that are perfect. And that philosophy has always really stayed with me of, I, I will be better. I, I will do this little thing. I'll, I'll read this book instead of going on TikTok, or I will <laughs> study for an exam instead of playing video games. Whatever it is, it's not going to make me perfect. There's not going to be this actualization that I hit, but it's going to get me a little bit closer to my goal. Yeah, what's I, I like thinking about that from the context of being an adult as well, because in the um, in, the, in the, the children's view is I need to study to get the A on the exam. But as an adult, there is no exam. And and, and, and because of, because there's no exam, what we can either create your own exam, i.e. like there are a lot of structures you can join. People join religions, go to universities structured jobs in order to get structure into their life or or you can say you know there's no structure and a good alternative to structure is this sort of the perfect enemy of the good i'm gonna compare myself to myself 30 days ago or one year ago and just and and uh and and constantly improve and and what, what i want to add to that is i think it's interesting to wrap this back to this moment of fear on the call of um, where you uh, uh, where, where where you had to get in the middle of this marriage, and when you said that twenty minutes ago, I pu- I, I pushed back at it on, and you. Know, I was like, you know, I think I I would have been stronger because I, I tend to be strong and dark on these things, and now having really analyzed this philosophically, now now we're now we're tying it back in. Now I'm it's clear to me why why you took this softer approach because because perhaps the harder line might have made the message clearer and stronger but there but there's like the worst consequence of causing a problem in their marriage or causing a problem between uh, between them so rather than going for the perfect uh answer no you need to cut this off stop this cancel this credit card there you 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 went for not the perfect but the good. So I, I like how you're philosophically, your, your actions are consistent with your philosophy. You know, it, it, being an accountant forces you to do this. And an, another industry joke, um, accounting is two months of planning for everything. And then two weeks of shrugging your shoulders and saying it is what it is. Uh, <laughs> when you're dealing with a tight deadline, sometimes you just have to do it. And I think it really pushed me into the it's one of the many things in my life that really pushed me into the let's get it good enough. Let's get it as good as it can be. And, you know, to be fair, I didn't know it was going to work out. I I really didn't, I, you know, benefit of hindsight, I can say, yeah, the soft touch worked, you know, the guy got, you know, everybody got what he wanted. The guy got to retire. Spending was a little bit higher than they originally anticipated, but you know, not a big enough issue that I ever heard about it. And I didn't know that at the time. Uh, Another outcome that could have happened was, yeah, she's still spent, you know, she's still spending. Uh, I'm just going to have to push back retirement and be miserable for five more years. And, you know, that's, that's the point where you revisit it. You don't have to be done in one outing. Like it's not, it's not just one interaction with a client and that has to be perfect and solve all of their problems forever. 
yeah, no, um, yeah, that that makes sense. And this this goes to another aspect of being a professional, where like as a consistent advisor over months, years, you like often you can see, okay, I want I need to convince them of this thing, and it might take a year, two, or three to convince them. So you can slowly set the clues and the hints, and I um, so so that so that uh, yeah. Sometimes, like, because people go to one of your, or, or build on one of your earlier points, um, despite the desires of your engineering clients, people are not robots. So, therefore, it's very rare for a human to hear, here's a logically correct reason why you need to change everything in your life now. No one's going to. But when you need them to change, you can kind of use some marketing with your clients. And uh, and throw this hint, tell this story, encourage encourage this show them worse and worse numbers, slowly dial up the fear dial, whatever, whatever the approach is until the point, until the point where they're actually ready, ready to make a change. Oh yeah. Well, one of the things that I do, one of the kind of tricks that I do is as we're looking at it, you can talk to people. People are very eager. Once you break down the barriers, once you break down barriers, people are very eager to share with you what they're spending their money on. And so I can just say, Oh, wow. You know, you went hella skiing last week. Was that worth five more years in this job? You hate is that because <laughs> if it is great and we can revise the plan, it doesn't matter. Totally. If not, you know, let's, it, it, if it's not worth it, then let's go back and maybe think about that before you buy the trip. I like it. I also, uh, before we wrap up, I want to call out one really subtle thing you did in the conversation with the wife that uh, that that that, ju- that just occurred to me. Uh, that just occurred to me now, but I thought was I now realize is very clever. So I think it's a useful lesson for the listeners that have made it this far that are hopefully drinking beer while while they're listening as as well. Which is which is this moment of silence where you say. Oh, the plan is that uh, uh, that you know that you should be saving six thousand dollars, x dollars a month, uh, but it's but it's uh, but it's not happening. And instead of you saying what the problem is, you made him put the two dots together. So uh, so he realized that the wife had to be spending it. And what I found is as a super super powerful client management technique, especially in difficult situations is to not tell them the thing that you need to say, but lead the horse to the fountain. And so that they put together, even if you put together the first 99 dots, if they put together that last dot, it becomes clear and powerful in their mind in a way that it doesn't. If you just tell them, uh, if, if you tell them. So, so I think one of the reasons why this situation uh, turned out well was because you 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 use that uh, that technique. Absolutely, I, and uh, why I like that technique so much is at that point it's his idea. It's not my idea. I'm not the one <laughs> exactly. saying that it's a problem. You figured it out, and um, when people take ownership of their own ideas, very different outcomes. Yeah. Exactly. And and the idea can be 99% yours. They just need to maybe do that, that, that if 
you're building a house and the only thing you do is like put the final nail on the wall then like you feel like you built the, the, the entire house yeah and, they're, cu- they're cutting the ribbon they got the gold yeah. scissors he's, he's, and, and by the way people people talk about that like i know people say oh yeah i built a house i did this i did that when when, when really they just like they wrote the check and cut the ribbon and um and that's it but but they but they feel that ownership and we understand that on the big level of building a house but i thought i think it's very clever what what you did in this like micro situation in this middle of the husband and wife in this context of um uh of uh of doing that and i and and i think i'm pretty good at these things but i think this is also one way i can learn from you and uh, and improve because i think my instinct is more to is to say is to tell them to the end the the, the hundred <laughs> rather than the, the uh the 99 and i think it's because like uh, maybe it's because i like the satisfaction of oh yeah it's my my idea but it's actually so much more effective when uh when you can like let go of that and uh and and let well, the other thing that the silence is excruciating and you do have to kind of get comfortable with that. And we just want to talk. We, our brains are screaming at us when there's silence of you got to fill this up. This is awkward and weird. And you really have to work to suppress that. And just, no, everybody needs time to think. And maybe if he didn't figure it out, she would have felt that pressure to fess up. Everybody's feeling the same pressure to fill that conversation back up. Um, and if anything, the error is to talk too much. Yeah. That, and that's, that's a great final point to, to wrap on that, uh, that, that this other technique that you use of just saying it and then being silent and like to give them the minute or few in order to put together that fine, that, that, that final dot. And there's such this, we're, we're taught, to like hate silence. And I'm like in New York too. So I'm like doubly taught to hate silence. Um, but it's, uh, but it's actually super powerful because people aren't robots to against the earlier point. And, and because we're not robots, we sometimes need a moment in order to wire the different, the, 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 the different facts together. Absolutely. Okay. I think we got a whole bunch of, uh, of lessons uh, of, of of lessons from here um and yeah it was it, uh, it was great and we did achieve my goal of getting at least one new lesson that that hasn't come up on on on, on an episode before and i've uh, and i can now feel a bit closer to my uh, to my father as well i used to think it was a very different profession there's nothing what do i know about accounting nothing but when one of the meta lessons of of of, of our of, of our, our one of the meta lessons of our conversation is um, is that um, so much of being a professional is um, is dealing with people and dealing with these situations and uh, yeah and I uh, and and my you and my father both do that great. Well, wonderful. And uh, and. Everyone who's watched it to the end, thank you for making it this far. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as uh, as much as we had. And now we're gonna continue drinking our beers. <laughs> Thanks. Woo!